If you have a Bible, turn with me to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're in a series in the book of Genesis, and we have been slowing down through Genesis 1 through 3 uh, because they are these chapters, these early chapters in the Bible are so foundational uh, to living life well in God's world. And so we're going to spend uh, this morning uh, in Genesis chapter 2. Next, the next couple of weeks will be in Genesis chapter 3. This morning what we see here, remember God's been creating the world. He created human beings. And this morning we see that God creates marriage. Marriage is not our idea. It's God's idea. He invented it. He created it. And you know what that means? We're going to keep coming back to this. It means that he determines, not us, God determines how marriage works best. Why? Because he's the creator of marriage. And it's important you hear me say this a lot. Uh, we got to remember our can't say everything principle. Marriage is a huge topic. Uh, and so it's important for us to remember that we're not going to be able to cover everything about marriage uh, this morning uh, as we deal with the topic. Uh, the main emphasis of this passage is not what is perhaps the main concern of many of us this morning at the present moment. The main concern with this passage is not divorce recovery. It is not the full scope of the teaching of the Bible on remarriage. It's not singleness. It's not fighting the guilt and shame of broken relationships. It's not seeking the assurance of forgiveness of broken relationships. All of those things are important. And the Bible talks about all those things. But just not here. The primary goal of this passage is to teach us God's original design of marriage in the beginning. And so with that in mind, follow along with me as I read God's word. Genesis 2 verses 18 through 25, this is the word of God. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to see the man brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him and so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this is a huge topic uh, that we are looking at this morning, but very foundational. Many of us in a room this size and those who are in overflow this morning, we come to this topic of marriage from lots of different places. Some of us have been hurt by marriage. And so when we think about marriage, it automatically uh, 
is a place for us of pain and disappointment. Others of us this morning would love to be married but aren't and long for you to bring them a spouse. Some of us this morning see our marriage as the greatest gift that God has given us and we could not imagine life without our spouse. So lots of different places and we need you to come and give us a word wherever we find ourselves this morning. Some of us are dug in and we think we know what's best and we think we know um, how things should go and what is right. And I pray that you would give us the hearts of children this morning. That we would come to your word and to this topic needy, expectant, humble, and that we would be willing to listen to what you have to say about marriage. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 19, it's a very interesting uh, passage. Jesus is being confronted by the religious leaders of the day who were the Pharisees. And he is being confronted uh, by them with questions of divorce. And here's what Jesus does. It's very interesting. Jesus responds back to them and says, these are the religious leaders. They're supposed to know everything. And he says, don't you know? Haven't you read? Don't you know what the creator says about marriage? And then he quotes... This passage, portions of Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapters one and two, he goes back to the very beginning when asked questions about marriage. He goes to Genesis and focuses not on the deviations but on the design of marriage. And the Apostle Paul, as we're going to see later, does the exact same thing. Why? Because to understand how things work, what do we have to do? You go to the person who made it. We consult the person who designed marriage. And so that's why Jesus goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. And when we go back to the beginning of the Bible, here's what we see. That marriage was designed to be a gift. Imagine that. Marriage was designed to be a blessing. Think about the order of creation. He creates human beings. And then he says it's not good that man is alone. And he gives Eve to Adam and so we could say this is the crown blessing of creation is God's goodness to man by giving him marriage God loves us that's why he gives us marriage now let me push pause that's important to say because it's true but also some of you hear that and it's very hard to believe isn't it Because we look at what the world, and marriage is on the rocks. It is down for the count. And maybe even in your own life, you're thinking, what? A place of blessing and flourishing and love? Because marriage in my life is a place of disappointment and pain. And the reason for that is because of Genesis chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. You see, sin has wreaked havoc on this thing called marriage. And made it a place for so many of pain and disappointment. But the question I want us to look at this morning is how can our marriages be a place of flourishing and blessing rather than places of pain and disappointment? How can our marriages be places of flourishing and blessing rather than pain and disappointment? That's the question 
And what we see is that in order for that to happen, for our marriages to be blessing and flourishing, we need to understand three things. First, the pattern of marriage. Secondly, we'll see the principles in marriage. And then lastly, we'll look at the power of marriage. We've got to understand those three things if our marriages are to be places of flourishing. Let's look at our first heading, the pattern for marriage. The Bible begins with a marriage, begins with a wedding, and ends with a wedding. Remember in Revelation 19, uh, the great wedding feast of the Lamb? And so we see right in the opening pages, we see a wedding. Look at verses one, cha- uh, verse, chapter 2, 21 and 22. God made a man from the rib he had taken out of the man, and I love this next part, and this is what stood out to me this week. And like a gift, he brought her to the man. One scholar says, God himself, like the father of a bride, leads the woman to be wedded to the man. You see the tradition of walking the bride down the aisle and bringing the bride to the groom didn't start with us. It stretches all the way back to the garden where God brought his daughter, Eve, his creation, to the man to marry him. And then Adam, remember, it was not good that he was alone, and God starts parading the animals in front of Adam, and Adam starts naming them. And then it says that there was no helper fit for him. And then God creates woman. And in verse 23, you see Adam breaks out in poetry. It's poetry. That's what it is. Adam starts singing at last. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, finally, another human being, someone who is like me, a helper that is fit for me and that is suitable for me. And so then the question is, what does that mean? Helper? Well, over the years, people have taken this to say, see, that's why I don't like the Bible. Because it's demeaning towards women. That's not what it's saying. Let's work this out. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God creates human beings, and it says male and female, husband, wife, in the image of God, being both equal in dignity and honor. And maybe you say, okay, well, but helper still seems to indicate that the woman woman is less than him, less than man. Well, the word helper, think about it, it's not demeaning or a lesser term. If anything, the word helper indicates the complete opposite. What do I mean? Think about helping your kids with homework. What's the requirement? For you to help your kids with their homework. The requirement is that you know something that they don't know. That's the requirement for being a helper. We also see that in the scriptures the word helper. Almost every time it's used. It's used of God. To describe him. And the aid that he would give Israel over their enemies. I could list a hundred scriptures. But Psalm 46, God is your refuge and your strength and your very present help in time of trouble. Moses uses the word helper when he talks about 
God delivering him from Pharaoh. And so the word helper is someone who has resources and abilities that you don't have. So to say it another way and more clearly, the word helper is not a term of weakness. It is a term of great and wonderful strength. And we see this phrase here, helper fit for him. Look at verse 18. If you have a new international version, it might say a helper suitable for him. The word fit or suitable literally means according to his opposite. And so what that means is that the woman was made to be a corresponding counterpart to the man. The woman was, would make it possible for the man to be who he could never be on his own. And likewise, the man would make it possible for the woman to be who she could never be on her own. What he lacked, she supplied. What she lacked, he supplied. And so what we see here from the beginning is that God created male and female equal in dignity and honor, but also distinct and different. And these differences are not meant to hurt you in marriage. They're meant to help you. Men and women are designed differently so that you can help one another and aid one another in the areas that you lack. So what does this mean for us as we think about God's design for marriage? What do we learn? Some few application points here. We learn, number one, that marriage is monogamous. It's between man, one man, and one woman. You say, well, I see polygamy all in the Bible. Well, not until after the fall. Not until Genesis chapter 4 does polygamy show up. Marriage is designed... One man, one woman. The other thing we learn is that marriage is heterosexual. Between male and female. Husband and wife. We also learn here that gender differences are at the very heart of creation. Male and female, God created them. And again... We live this side of Genesis chapter 3, and so yes, sin has blown marriage to bits in some ways and made a mess out of many marriages, and sin has wreaked havoc on gender and on sexuality, and we see that clearly as we look at our culture, but Genesis chapters 1 and 2 says that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way God designed it at the beginning. That human beings are not generic. But they're gender specific. And the genders are not interchangeable. You see, our culture wants to blend the genders. But it's important to note here that gender is not a social construct. You're not made male and female merely by our socialization. Again, let's come back to it. Who created you? Who gets to say who you are? Your creator gets to say who you are. God says who you are. He gets to tell you that. Why? Because it's God that puts the X chromosomes and the Y chromosomes together. And that's who you are. Male or female. The other thing that I think is important as we think about marriage. That we see clearly here that's really important. Is that differences are good in marriage. 
and that we should learn to appreciate them. You see, part of the problem in our marriages is because we're self-centered. We think the world revolves around us. Remember that from the first sermon in Genesis? And so because of that, we think everyone should be just like us. And so what that means is then we want a spouse that's not high maintenance. We want a spouse that will never confront us or seek to change us, but we want someone who is compatible with us in every single way. And this passage says no. That God gives you someone that's different than you, not to hurt you, but to actually help you. What if we believe that? Just that one thing. That your spouse was given not to hurt you, but to help you. It would be a game changer in our marriages. Why? Because instead of seeing our spouse as against us and getting defensive, our instinct, what if it was to be, I need them. They are to help me. What if we saw our spouse's differences not as a threat or as a deficiency in them, which we often do, What if our instinct was to say, I'm curious. What are they trying to teach me? What is God trying to teach me? What do I need to see that I can't see on my own? What if that was our instinct? Or what do I need to learn? Or what is my frustration with them revealing, not about them, but is revealing about me? Friends, marriage, a marriage that flourishes, begins with understanding first the pattern of marriage. Second, again, so much more we could say. Secondly, the principles of marriage. We see some very foundational principles here uh, in regards to marriage. And one of the things we see is that marriage, a foundational principle, is friendship. Look at verse 18 with me. Very easy to miss, but what's the primary reason that God gives Eve to Adam to be married? What is the primary reason that God gives Eve to Adam to be married? It's not for sex. That's often what we think, or primarily for sex. No, why? Think about the narrative. The narrative is Adam was alone. He needed a friend. He needed companionship. He needed more than a lover. He needed deep friendship. Someone that would understand him because he was incomplete. And so the best marriages, it's been said, are foundationally friendship garnished in romance. Not romance with the hope of maintaining a friendship. And it makes total sense if you think about it, those of you who are married, doesn't it? Why? Because what are you doing 99% of the time in marriage? Relating to one another as friends. You're walking around with spit up on your shirt. You're changing diapers. You're working. You're talking about finances, thinking how in the world are we going to pay for this? Or we're out of money. Or you're raising children. Are you running carpool? Are you thinking, do I put my kids in public school or private school? And then you've got the storms of life that come crashing in on you. And you lose a job. And you have a wayward child and your health starts to decline. And then you start to lose your parents and people that you love. What do you need in those moments? You need a friend. Marriage is friendship and you will be frustrated in marriage if you do not have a friend. What are you doing, those of you who are married, to cultivate companionship? To cultivate friendship in your marriages? 
If you're single and long to be married, there's application here for you on who you should be looking to marry. Of course, you need to be marrying in the Lord and looking for a Christian, yes. But right at the top of the list, right next to that, is that you should be looking for someone who is a friend. It's been said, date and marry your best friend. Because marriage foundationally is friendship and companionship. Verse 24, the other principle we see here, look at this idea of a man shall leave his father and mother. This idea of leaving gets at the priority of marriage. So marriage is to be the number one relationship and have the number one priority in your life. It's to be the most important relationship in your life. And it must be more important than your leisure time, than hunting, than sports, than your parents, than your career. Why? Because it's the way God made marriage. And if you try to do it differently, you're in trouble. Marriage is to be your top priority out of all the relationships in your life. Singles. How do you know when you're ready to get married? You know you're ready to get married when you're willing to forsake all others. And when you're willing to make this person the top priority in your life above your career, above your family, above your recreation, and above your dreams. And people often ask me, why is that? Why does it have to be the number one priority and get the most of my attention? Why? Because it's the only human relationship where you're in covenant with another person. Verse 24. It doesn't only involve leaving, it also involves cleaving. Hold fast to your wife. That gets at this idea of covenant. That's what marriage is. It is a personal It's public in that you stand before God and witnesses and you don't care who holds you accountable to the covenant. And it's also permanent. So it's a permanent commitment. It's personal, public, and permanent commitment between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And when we get that, that covenant is foundational to marriage, that also helps us to get a proper understanding of love, don't we? Of what true love is. I used to get this question all the time on the college campus. Love is covenantal. Love is not a feeling. It is a commitment. It is a decision. The world sees love as a ditch that you fall into and out of. That's not what love is. I used to have students come to me in their freshman, sophomore year, and they would say, I was in the grove, and I was looking into that special someone's eye, and I just felt it, and I'm in love. And I would say, okay, you're in love. Then go to a church. I'll do the wedding. Stand before God and witnesses and get married. Because that's what love is. You see, why is that important? Well, because feelings change. Feelings are not stable. Feelings are tied to circumstances and emotions and tied to what side of the bed you get up on, and whether you're having a good or bad day at work, and so they come and go. And love says it's a commitment and a covenant, and it says I will be here regardless of my feelings. That's love. Will you have feelings and excitement in marriage? Yes. My point is that the feelings are a byproduct. They're a byproduct of the covenant commitment that you've made with one another. Lastly, verse 24 there as far as a principle, this idea of one fleshness, I think is important for us to talk about. 
This idea you see that's foundational to your marriage flourishing is unity. There must, this one flesh means social and emotional and spiritual and financial and physical unity takes place within marriage. And so sex then becomes an outward physical manifestation of that one fleshness that pervades all the other areas of the marriage relationship. I had a person from the congregation come up to me afterwards and said their kid leaned over to them in the service at about this point and says, what's sex? And I said, mission accomplished. You know why I said that? Because this sex belongs to the church. It belongs to God. He created it. And so I want the church to be setting the pace on how we think about sex as we go forward in the world. God made sex, let me say it another way, to be a symbol that acts out the covenant of marriage. Sex is your covenant renewal service. It's God's created way for a husband and wife to say to one another, as the years go by, I am still here. I have not left you. I am yours completely and permanently and exclusively. I belong to you. And so right from the very beginning, we see the Bible's sex ethic. That a covenant between a man and a woman, marriage, is necessary for sex. Let me be clear. Sex is between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, in the context of a marriage covenant. Could we say more about that? Of course. There's lots more to be said. Let's look at our last point. The power of marriage. We're not very good at this marriage thing, are we? And so where do we get the power to do this? How do we love this way and commit this way? Well, it's interesting. Is The Apostle Paul, it's crazy as you start looking at it, when the New Testament writers start talking about marriage, they go back to Genesis. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 starts talking about marriage and he quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Therefore a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They should become one flesh. But then he adds this. He says this mystery of marriage is profound. And I am saying it refers to Jesus and his church. And so what does that mean for us? Well, think about out of all the things God could have used to be a symbol of the union that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church. You know what God chose? He chose the marriage relationship. And so that means that marriage is supposed to be gospel reenactment. It's a real life picture of how God loves his people. There's this shocking story in the Bible in Hosea where... A man is asked to marry and and he marries the town prostitute. And after he marries her, she keeps cheating on him. Over and over and over, she keeps running after other lovers. She eventually has children from from these other men. And through all of this heartbreaking infidelity, the husband stays. He remains in the marriage and remains committed to her. And you know what God says? God says, that's it. You see that picture? That is how God loves you. 
And I want you to think about that. Because when we look at God's marriage, to us, it has not been very good. Because we are a terrible spouse to God. Because we are relentlessly running after other lovers. But you know what God says? God says, I'm in covenant with you. And so I'm going to relentlessly run after you. Despite your unfaithfulness, I will be faithful. Despite you breaking promises, I will keep my promises. That's the gospel. The gospel is such good news because it says that all that's wrong with us, Jesus gets. On the cross. All of our shame and all of our infidelity and all of our lack of love and selfishness and blame shifting. Jesus gets and dies for. And you know what? The gospel is such good news that we get all that's good about him. We get his riches and his righteousness. They become ours. Friends, God does not marry you because you're lovely. He marries you because he loves you and wants to make you lovely. Friends, I don't know where you are this morning. I know that this has potentially been very hard and difficult sermon to hear. Some of you are happily married. Others of you are miserably married. Some of you are single. Some of you are divorced and recovering, widowed, remarried. I don't know where you are, but here's what I want you to hear is that there is a marriage that is yours in Jesus. This is the point. There is a marriage that is yours in Jesus. And guess what? It is not over and it will never be over. Why? Because Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ is yours. Think about what we're saying. Christ is yours forevermore. That's the marriage that you're in if you're a Christian this morning. And so my question is, will you come to Jesus this morning? Will you come to a love that will never let you go? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to lay down your life for us, your bride, in order to make us beautiful. Would you forgive us uh, for the ways that we ignore your design for marriage? Thank you that you're in covenant with us and that you will never let us go. What an amazing promise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.